Next Sunday, uh, if you missed last Sunday or uh, missed the email communication or whatever else this week, uh, Pastor Stephen announced that uh, he's going to be leaving he and his family for North Carolina. So they're going to be moving to uh, near Charlotte, North Carolina, and he's going to be a youth pastor at another church there. Stephen grew up in North Carolina. Both he and Sherry went to college uh, around Charlotte. And so we're excited to send him off. We're sad to see him go, but we're excited to send him and see what the Lord would do with him and through them in, in North Carolina. But with that, we want to send him off well. And uh, so next Sunday, July 12th, this is kind of popping, isn't it? Next Sunday, July 12th, uh, after the service, bring a dish, a, a dessert, a salad, something to share. We're going to grill chicken, and uh, we're just going to have a party to say goodbye to him. And so if you want to be a part of that, it's just going to be right after the service next Sunday, and encourage you to stay. And uh, we're, we're planning to give a gift to them as they leave. And so uh, if you want to contribute towards that, too, you're welcome to. Even just mark that as a gift in your offering this morning. And I can say that today while they're not here, because I won't say that next week. Sounds good? So we want to surprise them. So we'll, we'll do that next Sunday. So plan to be here next Sunday and uh, should be a good morning. With that, we're in the book of Philippians. And uh, we've been studying Philippians. This is our 12th week. And we've got one more after this when we wrap up the book. We've just been kind of plowing through this letter that Paul wrote to the church in a city called Philippi. Hence the name Philippians. And this week we're in chapter 4 starting in verse 10. And I'm going to read the passage, we'll pray, and then we'll start to unpack it. Sound good? All right, Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. Paul writes this, he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray. Father, thanks for Jesus. And uh, thank you that, in fact, we do have all we need in him, that we have more than enough in him. Uh, Father, I pray this morning that as I speak, Holy Spirit, I pray your words would, uh, would be in me and that you would speak through me, that you'd even teach me as I teach. And I thank you that you forgive me of my sin because of Jesus. And I thank you that you offer me contentment in Jesus. And uh, help us leave today with, with the heart toward that and that we would model that to, uh, to a world that, that is often really discontent and often seeking for things to fill a void, Jesus, that only you can, ultimately. Uh, I pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects. He would love to steal our joy. He would love to steal our contentment. In fact, he, he lies to us often to make us discontent. So instead, let our hope be Jesus in you. And uh, teach us those things this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, have you heard about the man who uh, lived in a tiny hut? This is a long time ago, but he lived in this tiny little hut with his wife, with his two kids, and with his elderly in-laws. In a tiny little hut. He's got his wife, his two kids, and his in-laws. And you can imagine, in this tiny little house, things got a little bit cramped, to say the least. And after a while, he can't take it anymore. So he goes to the village wise man, and he goes to him, and he says, Hey, here's the deal. 
I'm living with my wife, my two kids, and my in-laws. And our house is packed. And I can't get rid of any of them. I can't get rid of my kids till they grow up and get out of the house. I can't get rid of my wife. And I can't get rid of her in-laws. I mean, I can't get rid of her parents. She'll get rid of me. What do I do? How do I live with this? And he asks him, he says, um, thought for a little while, and he said, do you have a rooster? The man said, yeah, I've got a rooster. He said, well, here's what you do this week. Take it in the house and keep it in the house with you this week. The man goes, okay, that's kind of strange. But he goes home and he does it. And he brings the rooster inside the house. And a week goes by and he goes back to the wise man. He goes, I don't know what you're thinking, dude. I brought the rooster in the house and he made a mess. He's, he's loud. He wakes us up every morning. He, uh, he, he poops all over. He just makes a huge mess. He stinks. It's louder and it's worse than it was before. The wise man goes, well, I see. Do you have a cow? And the guy says, yeah, I've got a cow. Bring it in the house with you this week. He says, I was afraid that's what you're going to say. So he goes home, he takes the cow and he brings it in the house with him. And the the cow's living in the house with the rooster and his wife and his two kids and his in-laws and this tiny little hut. And you can imagine the mess that that made. And he, he goes back to the wise man after a week. He goes, it's worse than it was before. The cow takes up like half the space. And it's obnoxious. Well, by the end of this, the time goes on, he has a, a rooster, a cow, a goat, um, a dog, and his brother's kids, all living in the tiny hut with him. And every week he goes back, he, the guy tells him to add one more thing to the mix. So finally, he just gets fed up. He goes, I'm not going back to that guy. Kids, go home. Dogs, you're out. Goat, you're out. Cow, get out. Rooster, punts him out. And suddenly... The house was calm and quiet, spacious, and he never complained again. (laughs) Now, the point of the story is, if you come to me with a problem and my first question is, do you have a rooster? (laughs) You'll know what I'm getting at. But, But really, the point is, you know, this guy like us has everything he needs to be content. And contentment isn't an issue of what I have or what I don't have. It's, am I okay with what I have and not having what I want? That's the issue. And that's what Paul writes about this morning. And the question for you this morning is, are you a content person? Are you a contented man, a contented woman? Are you okay with what you have? You know, you might go, I don't know if I have that gift. I don't know if I have the gift of contentment, Josh. You know, we did the shape profile, the spiritual gifts. I don't have that gift. Well, you know what? That's good because it's not a gift. In fact, it's something you learn. Notice what Paul says. He says twice, verse 11, he goes, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He goes on at the end of verse 12, I have learned the secret of being content. Are you content? Are you you okay in every situation with what you have? Well, Paul references three things here that I think will be helpful for us when we talk about contentment and being content in the Lord and content in Jesus. 
Number one is this, get your eyes off yourself. Number one, get your eyes off yourself. Do you want to be content? Put the mirror away. Quit looking at you. Where do I get this from? Well, Paul, look what he writes in verse 10. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, and now at length, that you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. He's writing to this church in Philippi, and what he's saying is he had, he had started this conversation earlier. If you remember back to chapter 1, he thanks them for sending Epaphroditus. He thanks them for their partnership with him in the gospel. And he gets to this point later in the letter, and he thanks them specifically for their gift. Specifically, they, they had sent a generous financial gift. The Philippian church was a generous church. I mean, you know we've got the five traits, Right? A fully devoted follower is somebody who learns continually to image Jesus and love, and uh, to become like Jesus and to image Jesus. And then we do that by worshiping passionately and loving selflessly and giving generously and living missionally. Well, if, if those things were on the wall in the Philippian church, they would just be able to cross off, give, gives generously. These people gave generously. They checked it off the list. They were incredibly generous. See, they heard, they knew that Paul was imprisoned in Rome. Maybe if you're new this morning, you didn't realize Paul's writing this from prison. He's writing a letter after being thrown in jail simply for preaching the gospel and sharing Jesus with other people. He hadn't really done anything against the law, but there was a conspiracy, this riot he was blamed for, and he gets put on trial. And he appeals to Caesar, and he ends up in Rome, and he's there in prison. But what you may not know is that when Paul is in prison, he has financial need. See, if you or I get thrown in jail, all of our needs in prison are cared for, right? I mean, there, there's shelter, there's food, there's clothing. Um, you get all those things when you're in prison here. But in that day, you paid your own way. So if you're in prison and you want to eat, well, then I hope you can pay for it. Or you might just get leftovers. He had financial need, and, and the Philippian church realizes this. And they, they take up some kind of a collection or they do something and together they send some money to him along with Epaphroditus to provide for his needs. And this is really interesting when you think about it because a few years later, five, six, seven years later, Paul wrote a letter to another church in Corinth. And this church was incredibly wealthy. This church had, uh, had all kinds of things. They had all the bells and whistles. They had three projectors on the wall. I mean, it was, they, they had it down, right? Huge auditorium. I'm ex- you know what I'm saying? But they, they were wealthy. And Paul writes to them, to this wealthier church, and he speaks of churches in an area called Macedonia. Do you know what church would have been included in that area of Macedonia? This church, Philippi. And six, seven years previous to this, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and he says this. He, he speaks of them. You can read about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, but he spoke of their extreme poverty, he said. Those churches, they're so poor, extremely poor. They have a severe test of affliction because of their poverty. They're so poor. Yet when they heard that fellow Christians in Judea were hungry, do you know what they did, Paul writes? He says that that these poor churches begged him if they could send money with him to those churches for the famine there. They were generous. You know, that tells me you don't have to be wealthy to be generous, do you? You don't have to be wealthy to be generous. In fact, the reality is 
And studies back this up over and over and over. The more wealthy someone becomes, the less generous they become as a general rule. The the more money someone makes, the more money they bank away, the more money they invest, the more money they have at the end of the day, most of the time, this isn't, there's, there's exceptions to this, but as a general rule, they tend to be less generous. How can that be? Most of us think if I just get enough more, then I'll start tithing. You know, I can write a check this week, but I don't know in a few weeks. Or I could give to this this time, but I don't know about next time. You, you don't know how tight it is. You're right, I don't. But I would bet that, that by the time you finally get that extra to where you can give the way you want to give, I bet you won't. Unless you start now. Because a lot of times, the more we get, the more we what? The more we want. <laughs> and then when we get what we want, what do we want? A little bit more. And it never satisfies. And there's this material addiction we have that's very much like a narcotic or a drug. And the high is just not high enough the next time. And we want more and more and more. And the reality is even in churches, I don't, I don't know the stats for our church specifically, but even in churches generally, generally speaking, the, the ones who are poor give more regularly. It's easier to let go. Yet, you know what? That's a, that's a bigger sacrifice for them. If you're making $20,000 a year and you're giving 10%, you're down to 18000 and you've got to live off of that and maybe feed a family. And Yet there's others who would make 200000 and maybe they would give 2000 too. I don't know. I, I don't know. Again, I don't know the stats for our church other than as a general rule, we're a very generous church, which is good. You look at the financial statements every month and it's incredible. But if you get into that trap thinking, if I only had a more, then I could give. If I only had some more, then I'd be content. If I only had this, oh, then, then life would be better. Be careful. And you know what? We all fall into that trap, don't we? I mean, I can remember when I was single, if I only had a wife. And some of you guys who are laughing said, yeah. <laughs> Wait till you get, no. And the guy gave me a wonderful wife. If I only made more money, if I only... What's the, what do you fill in the blank with? What's causing your discontentment? If my house was only this much bigger, if I only had this much more, will it be enough? I'm not sure. Generally speaking, the more we get, the more we want. And it's been said this way, the more we possess, the more what we are... The more money we possess, the more we're possessed by our money. When Paul wrote to Timothy, a, a young man who he was mentoring, he talked about contentment like this. He said this, he says, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root. Remember, hear that right. It's not the root of all evil. It's a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. 
And Paul goes on to say that the way you can guard yourself from that, Timothy, in verse 18, do good, be rich in good works, be generous, be ready to share. The surest way to protect yourself from a heart that's selfish and covetousness is to start giving of your time, of your talent, of your treasure. Be generous. Are you generous? You see, sometimes people hear a guy like me talk about money or giving or whatever else, and they go, I know what you're about. You just want money. You know, we've been, um, a handful of you have been part of this, not everyone, just because we can't accommodate everyone to do it. So we randomly picked a handful of people. We're exploring what does God have for us as it relates to our facility, how it works as a tool in ministry. And there's been a large group of people we've been gathering, just brainstorming ideas, what if, if God wants us to accomplish this goal, is there anything about our facility that maybe we should change so that we can accomplish this better and make disciples? And you know what often comes out in any, kind, any church, not just our church, but any church when you start talking about building or adding on or, or doing anything financially? That's what I hate about church. They just want my money. I'm not, nope, they just want money. And you know what that is? It's, it's looking, we, we do that to... That's okay if you feel that way, but it's not true. We look at God, though, all of us do, and we go, God, I, I would give, but I think you're trying to rob me. Don't you know what I had planned for this? Don't, don't you know what I was going to do? I think he probably does, doesn't he? He's God. But the thing is, God's not trying to steal your money. He's not trying to rob you by asking you to give. Not in the least. He wants to protect you from being possessed by it. And the thing is, here's the thing. Sometimes we think, oh, well, then it must be good to be poor. It must be better to be poor than to be rich. The Bible doesn't say that. It's an issue of your heart. You can be really poor and be incredibly selfish and incredibly stingy and just evil in that way. You can be incredibly rich and be incredibly stingy and never let go of anything and hold it so tight. It's wickedness. But you can also be really poor and be incredibly generous. Maybe you don't give as much as someone who's wealthy, but as a percentage of what you give and how you give, that's generosity, man. And you can be really wealthy and be really generous. See, it's not a matter of how much you have. It's are you content with what you have and are you willing to release it to, whether that's your time, your talent, or your treasure, to serve God and to honor him. And and God isn't trying to rob you. He's trying to help you. One of the best pictures of this is in a movie, or maybe you've read the book, Lord of the Rings. And it's written by a guy named, uh, named, named J.R.R. Tolkien. And, and Tolkien was, whether you know it or not, he was a Christian. He was friends with C.S. Lewis. And in much of his writing, in much of these movies and in these books that he wrote, there's, there's imagery that points back to his faith. And there's imagery that, that points back ultimately to a faith in Jesus Christ. And he, he was a guy who, who struggled often with whether or not, one, with contentment, but also with just, do I really know Jesus? Do, do I, am I really willing to, to give it all to trust him and to follow him? And there's this scene in the first, bo- first movie, first book, The Fellowship of the Ring. And, and what's going on here is there's this huge conflict between good and evil and after a great battle, there was this, the, the, the evil antagonist, Lord Sauron, Dark Lord Sauron, 
He was temporarily defeated, and his most dreaded weapon, this ring, was left behind. And it's found by this short little dude named Bilbo, who's a hobbit. And he finds it, and he uses it, you might remember. And you get on through later in the story, and Bilbo's ready to retire. He's ready to, to leave, and he's leaving an inheritance to his nephew, Frodo. Some of you guys who are nerds and you like this stuff, you're all about it. And others of you are going, what is he talking about? Bilbo, Frodo? Long story short, he's leaving his inheritance to his nephew, but as he's walking out the door, he still has this ring in his pocket. And he's walking out the door and he's with this man named Gandalf. Gandalf is a wizard, but but really he's an image of of Christ. He's an image of God oftentimes throughout the, the books and throughout the film. And in one scene as he's leaving, you know, Bilbo's talking to his friend Gandalf about departing on a long journey. And Gandalf encourages Bilbo to leave behind not just all his other stuff, but even the ring. And Bilbo grasps the ring in his pocket and he says, it's mine. But it's my own. It's my precious. What business is it of yours? What I do with my affairs And Bilbo looks at Gandalf with a suspicious eye. He goes, you want it for yourself. That's why you want me. You want it for yourself. Let me show you from the movie his response. And I think this is often God's response to us. You want it for yourself. Bilbo Baggins, do not take me for some conjurer of cheap tricks. I am not trying to rob you. Trying to help you. Fiercely, he says, Bilbo Baggins, if you couldn't understand it, do not take me for some conjurer of cheap tricks. I'm not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. He goes on, the scene goes on, and he says, all your long years we've been friends. Trust me as you once did. Let it go. Well, sacrificially, the Philippians knew how to do this. They knew how to let go of their stuff. They knew that in giving it away and being generous, God wasn't trying to rob them. He was helping them to not hold on to their stuff to where that became God. And in verse 10, Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, and now at length that you've revived your concern for me. You know, you read that and you go, so is Paul laying a guilt trip here like they revived their concern? Were they not concerned at one point? And he goes on right away. He says, you were concerned. You just didn't have the opportunity. You think about it. Paul's in prison. He's traveling around. He didn't have a cell phone where they could text him or track him and know exactly where he was to send their gift. And he's like, you just didn't have an opportunity. And now I'm in prison. You have an opportunity to give and you've done it. And I'm thankful for that. And the sending of their gift, it required all kinds of planning and effort and thoughtfulness. But notice, Paul rejoices what? In their gift? No, he rejoices in the Lord. He rejoices not in the gift, but in the giver. Paul Paul didn't say, give me more, give me more, I need it. He says, no, boy, I thank God that you gave me a gift. Because I did need it. But ultimately, I know it's from God, and I rejoice in the Lord for that gift. You know, that's good advice for us. Do you need a reminder that that all you receive and all you have is from God? 
It's his good gift to you. And he prov- See, God's a good father and he provides for his children in a good way. Whether that's, you know, you get a personal gift from somebody in the mail or from a visitor like Paul did in prison or you, you get a paycheck this week or you get some other kind of financial windfall or you get a meal out for free or whatever that is. Do you rejoice in the Lord for that? Because that's a good gift. James tells us that every good gift is from above. And that's God providing for his children. And to grumble then about the provision isn't to grumble about that thing. It's really to grumble about the provider. And it's to say either, God, you didn't give me enough, or why do you want it back? Are you trying to rob me? You need to get your eyes off yourself and realize all of it belongs to God to begin with. And the Philippians did that well. Here's what Jesus says. He says, look at the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. If God takes care of them, don't you think, think think about it. The birds in the air, the lilies in the field. If God takes care of them, don't you think he'll take care of you? Don't you think he'll see to it that your needs are met as well? Your father knows what you need. So seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you as well. It's not about what you have, what you don't have. It's is Jesus first, and are you content with what he's given you? So first off, if you want to learn to be content, get your eyes off of you. If you all want to learn to be content, number two, get your eyes off of your circumstances. Get your eyes off your circumstances. Paul writes his letter. He thanks them for the gift, but he knows how churches read letters sometimes. He knows how church people are. They're going to read that and they're going to think, oh, he wants another gift. That's why he said thank you. He wants more. That's why he said thanks. He's trying to guilt me into giving him more. And he says right away, that's not the case, doesn't he? Because what's he say? He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. He goes, I, listen, I, I'm not writing because I'm in need and I need more. I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every situation, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. You know, the the truth is, I don't know of anybody in this room who can say this the way Paul says it. Because I don't know of anybody in this room living in North America is suffering the way Paul's suffering. I mean, when Paul says, I know how to be brought low, you know how Paul was brought low? He was beaten low. I mean, this is a guy who, he had had abundance. He had been a Pharisee. He had all kinds of wealth. He was, he was well-to-do. He was doing great. And then what happens? He meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, and all of a sudden, all of his friends are gone. And in fact, he becomes a hunted man. Where if you read throughout the rest of the book of Acts, from about chapter 9 on, you'll find out they're chasing Paul down. They're trying to kill him. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to wipe him out. He knows what it is to be brought low, to go from wealth to nothing, to go from prominence to prisoner. He knows what that's like, but he says, I also know what it was like to abound. I've learned in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of what it means to be content, to be okay with where I'm at, with what I have. That's a lot for him to say. I don't know if I can relate to. And at first we might think, well, you know, Paul says, you know, I know what it's like to be brought low and I know what it's like to abound. And 
Many of us, you read that, you think, yeah, well, when I abound, when things are good, it's easy to be content there. Boy, it's really easy to be content when I've got enough. But just like our possessions are never enough, a lot of times when we have all we need to be content, we're not content. Just read the news. Look at the lives of people who are incredibly wealthy and famous in our culture. Many of them are more depressed, more sad, more searching for something than anyone else. Because the more they get, it's never enough. It's never enough. We realize that just like people become less generous with more money, they often become less content with more money. It's just, it's addictive. You always want more. Let's see if we can illustrate this. Where are the kids at? Kids, where are you? If you would be willing to help me, raise your hand. All right, we got, we got a whole row. Of, we, got, we got four volunteers. I'll, you four right there. You were the first ones I saw. So come on down. Hustle on down. I've got chairs for you, even. Put you right there so everybody can see you. John, why don't you come right down here on the end? All right. Now, here's what I got, guys I got a bag full of goodies. I do, yeah. John's excited. Would you guys like some? Okay, these are, these are for you. You can have them. So. I'll start with you, Luke. You hear all that? You hear it? What's it sound like? Skittles. You know your candy. Yes, I told him. You told him you knew it? Here you go, Luke. Hold on to those. No, all three. They're all yours. <laughs> Think I got any more? Yeah. Sour? How's that? What do you think I got for you? You think more Skittles? You're genius, John. More Skittles. Those are all for you. Here, I didn't. I only gave you two. There you go. How about that, John? What do you think I have for you? You think so? Here you go. John got just... You guys want more Skittles? Yeah. Here you go. You want some more? There you go. You got to share those with your dad. You're not sharing them with your dad? Yeah. How about some M&Ms? John, are you okay with just that for right now? Really? You ruined my illustration, but you're my hero. I really expected you to be really bummed that all you got was the push pop, but you like it, don't you? Pretty happy? You're content? You're good with what you got? Good man. I bet, I would bet though these guys would offer you some of their candy, don't you think? I bet they would. I bet, I bet if they're generous like the Philippian church, I bet they would probably pass some down to a guy in need. All right. Anybody else? Anybody else? 
Here, before I get in trouble, though, I'm going to take some of them back. Because you're going to get sugared up when you go home. Here you go. I'll give you each, each, I'll give you each one of each. How's that? Man, your fists are full. <laughs> I don't have any more M&Ms. So you guys good with that? All right, give them a hand. Thanks, guys. Karina's staring me down like you just gave my children all kinds of sugar. (laughs) She said, thank you. You're welcome. I just thought I'd be generous. But isn't it true, though? More often than not, the one who has less would look down and go, why don't I have any more? Why don't I have what they have? Do you do that? Do you have neighbors down the street? Do you have somebody down the pew from you right now that you go, wish I had what they had. I wish I had a little more. Then I'd be content. Then I'd be happy. Then I'd fill in the blank. Oftentimes our appetites are just not that easy to satisfy. And we live in a culture that's saturated by advertising that the goal of, you know what the goal of advertising is? To make you discontent. To make you want more. To want something you don't have. So that you'd go buy it. And we live in that culture. We're saturated by it. And at some point we need to go, you know what? There's things I need, there's things I want, and that's okay. But with what I have, having what I have and not having what I want, I'm okay. That I can be content. That whatever my circumstance is, whether it's having much or having little, whether it's being, having plenty or being hungry, whether it's uh, abounding or being brought low, whether it's death or life, whether it's sickness or health, I can be content. I can be okay. And you read that from Paul and you say, Paul, how can you be content in those things? The truth is this. If, if you're not satisfied with what you have, you'll never be satisfied with what you want. Never. I'll always need something more. You know, when when we come back from India, one of the things about going to India, you see these children and these pastors and these missionaries, all these people who are in incredible need compared to what we have here. There's some videos even on our website if you want to go watch them from India and our trips there. But you know what you see in their faces? Maybe more joy than anyone I've ever seen here. It's contagious too. Why? Because they're content with what they have. Would they like to have more? Would they like to have a house like we have? Would they like to eat like we do? Yeah. I bet if you asked any one of them, they'd say, yeah, let's do it. Can I come over tomorrow? But are they okay the way they are? Yeah. Similar to Paul. Now, when I say this, you got to hear me because there's there's another subtle lie that would say, "Well, so I see what you're saying, Josh. That 
I shouldn't be rich, then I should be poor. That I just should take everything I have and get rid of it and live like somebody does, you know, around the world where they don't have as much. And, and that's what I should do. And then, then I'll find contentment. And then, you know what? If you're miserable in your wealth, you're going to be miserable in poverty. If you're miserable in poverty, you're going to be miserable in wealth. See, that type of teaching would be the lie, that'd be the opposite of prosperity theology, it'd be a poverty theology or asceticism that says, um, and basically what it does is it denies the good gifts God gives you. See, the truth is you were born and you live and God's placed you in North America where, yeah, you're in the middle of the wealthiest culture to ever live on the face of the earth. And... Did God make a mistake in doing that? Does he want you to feel guilty because of that? No. In fact, in Acts 17, he says that he determines the time and place in which you should live. But he places you there for a purpose, to, to carry out his purpose, to reach people with the gospel right where you're at. And so it, it's not asceticism that I just have to, in order to be more spiritual, I've got to deny myself everything. Now, maybe if you're addicted to your stuff, maybe that would be a good thing for you, to deny yourself of some of your wants. And just be content with what you have. But that, that's equally as evil as saying, if I just get more, I'll be okay. What you really need to do is what Paul does. You need to, to balance between asceticism and materialism, between poverty theology and prosperity theology. And you've got to learn to be thankful for what you have and content with what you have. And the way Paul does that He says, get your eyes off yourself, get your eyes off your circumstance, and get your eyes on Jesus. Get your eyes on Jesus. Here's how he says it. He he says, let me read through the whole passage again. He starts off, he talks about the generosity of the Philippians. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me. You had no opportunity. It's a reminder to us to get our eyes off ourselves like the Philippians. He goes on, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. It's, it's not about my circumstance. I've learned to be content. You know, you know how I do that? Paul says this, he goes, I've learned the secret of being content any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or want. I've found the secret. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Get your eyes on Jesus. Now, you've heard that verse before, haven't you? You maybe have a coffee cup or a t-shirt with it on there. And sometimes we hear that, and automatically we think, oh, I can do anything I want in Jesus. We ignore the whole context of the passage. You know, Paul's not talking about self-sufficiency here. He, he's, not, he's not saying that, you know, you can do all things through Christ. You can chase your dreams and you can lose that 25 pounds and you can make that million dollars and you can win that basketball game and you can do all these things through Christ who strengthens you. Now, it would, that's not the context. The context is, you cannot, it's not that you can do what you want to through Christ who strengthens you. It's that you can do what God wants you to do through Christ who strengthens you. And ultimately what Paul's saying here is, I can be content through Christ who strengthens me. I can do it all. I can do it whether I have plenty. I can do it whether I have want. 
I can do it whether I'm uh, full, my stomach's full, and the fridge is full, and the pantry's full, or I haven't eaten for three days. I can do it all through Jesus Christ who strengthens me. Now, that's, that's not to deny some of the truth in those things that I shouldn't rely on Jesus as I go about my life, right? It's just saying that that's taking this verse out of context. And what he's really saying is you can be content. You can make it with Jesus. You believe that? Contentment isn't about getting what you want or denying yourself what you have. It's being okay with what you have and being okay with not having what you want. And maybe one day you'll have more. Maybe one day you'll have less. But the whole time you'll have Jesus because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, let me just close with this. This relates to us as a church. This relates to us to individuals. And maybe you'd think about your life and how there's been seasons of your life, too, where you've had abundance or you've had need. You know, you can, you can think of even our church. There was a time where I mentioned the facility earlier, right? Well, we didn't have a facility. We didn't have land. We met at the school. It was before I was here, but you met at the school. How many of you were here for that? You met at the school. And you did all kinds of work. And, 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 and you worked hard. And, and eventually more people came to know Jesus. And the church grew. And by God's grace, he gave you some land. And then he gave us... A building, and then he gave us the opportunity to add on to that building. Now, how many of you would go, boy, I wish we could just get rid of all this, burn it down, and go back to the school and scramble like we used to? That would be great. You know what? Is it okay that you like it better now when you have a home? It is, because it's a gift of God. But the question is, are you content with what you have and with what he may or may not give you in the future? How about when you, so those of you who are married, when you first got married, most, most people when they get married, they're, they're rubbing pennies together. Do you remember those days, some of you? Some of you when you got out of college and you're single and you're eating ramen noodles, you're in college trying to pay for college eating ramen noodles, and, and you were in need, right? Now, today maybe you have more. Maybe today you're still eating ramen noodles, but maybe today you have more. And you have a home, and you might have a family even. You might have a job that pays more than it did then, whatever else. My guess is if you weren't content then, you aren't content now. But if you were content then, you probably are now. And that you can praise God for the good gifts he's given you over time, and that he will give you in the future, and you can enjoy those gifts for what they are, a gift from your gracious Heavenly Father. And you can be content. Knowing that he may take it away, he may give me more, but he'll never take Christ away from me. And in him, I can be content in all things. Get your eyes off yourself and off your circumstance. Get him on Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus and thank you for your word and the reminder to us. Um, Lord, we're sick in the sense of in our sin, we, we get caught up in uh, looking to your gifts or looking to our circumstances and trying to find happiness and fulfillment in those things rather than in you. And the truth is, we'll, we'll probably struggle with that for the rest of our lives, Jesus, until you come back and make us new. But 
there's also a truth that as we trust you, as we give our life to you, by your grace, you change us. And in Christ, then, as we're in Christ, we have the opportunity, we have the strength to live the way you would desire for us to live. And we have the, the strength to be content with what we have, content with what we want but don't have, and content with whatever you would have for us in the future. Because through all of it, we have Jesus. I pray for those who don't know Jesus in this room or who would hear this later that, uh, that they would see that, that their longing, their striving for all of these different things to try to get life better and uh, fix the way they want it to be, it's always going to end up empty until they give their life, Jesus, to you. Until they repent of their sin, turn to you. Jesus, you said that as we trust you, you you've come uh, to give us life and to give it abundantly. And so I pray for those who never trusted you that they would and that you would keep that promise to them. For those of us who have trusted you, help us keep our eyes on you. It's so easy for us to get distracted with the needs and cares and concerns of the world that we forget to simply rest in you and to recognize you've given us more than enough to be content. Even if all you give us is Jesus. Love you. Thanks that you loved us first. We pray all this through Jesus, our Savior. Amen.